Hello, I'm George Middleton. Welcome to Deconstructing Race, a critical thought podcast where we deconstruct race and its social issues like this. A country emerging from protests of pain. After the killing of George Floyd, viral moments of racial bias caught on tape. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. And the deadly shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. Race, a social construct of chaos, resulting in learned behaviors that can be unlearned by challenging our system of beliefs. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's begin. Welcome to part two of Black People Can't Be Racist. Is that true? In part one, I submitted for your consideration the following premise. Black people can be racist as long as it supports the ideology of white supremacy. In other words, maintaining the racial hierarchy between white and non-white, with black always at the bottom. I then provided two behaviors specific to the racially demographic black community that supports this premise. One, colorism, and two, economic flight. In part two, we're going to explore the impact of colorism on the second behavioral component in my premise that I call economic flight. Let's begin with the study on skin color and wages by Vanderbilt University. White people. Dr. Joy DeGruy, who studies racial trauma, says colorism is rooted in proximity to whiteness. The whole notion that white is the best, the correct, the most intelligent, the most right about everything. And as you move along the color spectrum, of the darker you are, the less important, beautiful, viable, capable, all of those things that uh, the society has imposed upon us based on that notion of, of supremacy. It's impact woven into American society and can affect every aspect of life. Take a look at the differences in wages for a dark-skinned African-American, a brown-skinned, and a light-skinned African-American. The study showing hourly wages among blacks literally rising as skin tone lightens. Lighter-skinned minorities viewed as more intelligent by employers, even with identical education as their darker-skinned counterparts. 
Experts say these examples of colorism have long-lasting effects of both mental and physical trauma. The anti-blackness started with this whole idea that the darker you are, the less human you are. And so everyone's distancing themselves from that, I think, multi-generational trauma. Empirical evidence demonstrates that racism is a source of traumatic stress for racial slash ethnic minorities, particularly African-Americans. Like race and racism, skin tone and experiences of colorism, an often overlooked form of discrimination that privileges lighter skinned over darker skinned individuals, although not uniformly, may also result in traumatic stress. Colorism has a direct impact on economic attitudes and behaviors within a particularly affected community, which are any non-white cultures deemed as people of color. In a research project titled From Dark to Light, Skin Color and Wages Among African Americans, the researchers developed and tested a theory referred to as a preference for whiteness, which predicts that the interracial white, black, and intraracial wage gap widens as the skin shade of the black worker darkens. Using data drawn from the multi-city study of urban inequality and the National Survey of Black Americans, they reported evidence largely consistent with the theory. Moreover, they decomposed the estimated interracial and intraracial wage gaps and find that favorable treatment of lighter-skinned workers is a major source of interracial and intraracial wage differences as predicted by the theory. Uh, or is, um, it's the year 2020 and I still don't support black-owned businesses. And I've caught a lot of flack from those two videos, of course, by black people. A misunderstanding and misconstruing what I'm saying, misconstruing what I said. Uh, and for feelings, not facts, but just how they feel, you know? And it's crazy how we as black people have to support black owned businesses regardless of how black owned businesses conduct themselves. And that's the point that I was making. Like if you don't have a good product, and if you practice bad business, I'm not messing with you. And it's, it's, it's sad to say, but most black-owned businesses shouldn't be in the business, period. It just doesn't make sense. What's happening a lot is that if somebody has a negative experience with a brand that happens to be a black-owned brand, rather than have the conversation be like, you know what, I got shitty customer service from this brand, and this is the name of the company, and this is the name of the owner, and this happened to this, that, and the third. And that's all fine. I, I welcome, I wanted, we all should know where we should be spending our coins. But it, it's bothersome, and I didn't reckon, it took somebody else saying it to me recently in my group, and she was like, because somebody had purchased something from a black-owned business and was like, you know, the, the conversation began with, I try to support black-owned business, and it was a fine car. I didn't even, it didn't, it didn't trigger anything in me to hear it, because it's pervasive in our community. We are the worst. We continually, con and I have done it 
So I'm not shading anybody because I'm just as guilty as anybody else. But we are the worst and we are the first to say things like this black owned business. I try to support black owned businesses, but black owned the customer service, my shipping didn't get here. I got some attitude from this one. And all of that may be well and true. I think as black people, we owe it to ourselves to not interject that this brand is also, because by saying it, we are create we are normalizing disparaging black owned businesses and we are creating that narrative that we aren't shit and we look back um collectively black people we're a lot like other consumer groups with a few important differences but we're a lot like other consumer groups we don't buy black intentionally intentionally for the most part we buy based on our wants and our needs we buy based on convenience as well we also like good service we like pretty packaging you know just like everybody else but one big difference we have compared to everyone else is our attitude towards buying within our community and going you know to black owned corporations for our products and our services i know you know, our business and our corporations, we're not perfect, okay? We need to do a lot of things differently, which I'm going to talk about in another part of this series. But in this video, I'm specifically going to talk about black consumer behavior. Um, one main thing I notice with black consumers is how we say we want something for us, but if we get it, you know, and it's too exclusive, we have a problem with it. Um Black people have a really hard time with accepting exclusivity. Of course, you know, that can all be tied into the system of white supremacy, how we were we were taught to hate ourselves and value anything based around whiteness. And we were taught to cater to whites and, and anything that is non-black. Um, and it's funny because I think of how we need something comparable to, to, you know, Chinatown or little Italy in every city, you know, we need that for black people. I don't know. We can call it little Africa or, you know, uh, just a new black wall street or whatever. We need something like that for black people, but with the way we are now, all inclusive and multicultural, we wouldn't even want it. We wouldn't even want it. We would look down on it. It would be too ghetto for us, you know, but those same people who, who will look down on it will go to a raggedy ass Chinatown or Asian hair supply store that's just as ghetto and unprofessional looking with no problem. You know, that's unfortunately the mentality a lot of black people have. If it's quote unquote too black and it's not perfect enough or not fancy enough, we won't accept it. But we will accept imperfection and, you know, simplicity and, you know, from other communities and their businesses. OK, we say we want something for us, but we are overcritical of it when we get it. Did any of these sentiments expressed about black business Sound familiar to you? Let's put the rubber where it meets the road. Let's examine your economic behavior within your racial or cultural group. And remember, they are not the same. This activity is called the Cultural Trust Survey. It's designed for all racial and cultural demographics. It is from my first racial deconstruction workbook titled Beliefs Limiting Authentic Cultural Knowledge. There are no right or wrong answers. All that re is required 
is your self-honesty. Are you ready? Rate yourself from 1 to 10, low to high, on the following directives. I trust my members of my own race or culture over other racial slash ethnic groups. I prefer to spend the majority of my income supporting my own cultural business institutions, i.e. food, entertainment, clothing, or services, over other racial slash cultural groups' services and products. I receive better quality services from members of my own race or culture. I currently take financial management and investment direction from a member or members of my own race or culture. I prefer and view members of my own race or culture as the best potential for intimate and healthy relationships over other racial slash cultural groups. I receive all of my academic slash educational instruction from my own racial or cultural institutions. I prefer my children attend culturally relevant academic slash educational institutions where the majority of the teachers and staff look like me and my children. I am as knowledgeable about other racial slash cultural groups contributions to my country's growth as I am my own. Hopefully this self-reflective activity was successful in provoking thought in assisting you in identifying your economic attitudes and spending behaviors 
within your own community. While you are considering this, note the following spending statistics per community. Today, a dollar spends 28 days circulating in the Asian community, 19 days in the Jewish community, 17 days in predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant communities, and seven days in Hispanic communities. A dollar circulates for only six hours in the black community. In other words, when a black person earns a dollar, it is typically not spent with a black owned business. 99% of the $1.3 trillion buying power is spent outside of the black community. Blacks spend less money in black owned businesses than other racial and ethnic groups spend in businesses owned by members of their groups. As it pertains to the topic of this podcast today, on the question of whether or not black people can be racist toward their own community, some questions for your consideration. How can members of this black racial demographic continue and justify this statistically collective treatment towards each other? In view of these two self-limiting behaviors alone, is not the black racial demographic community maintaining their own last place position in the racial hierarchy created by the European? Can any government policy overcome the disparities that the racially black demographic community is placing on themselves? That's the first step. So let's bring it. Amira Adway from the Beauty Well Project in Minnesota, an organization that empowers people to embrace their identity and culture. Amira, good morning to you. Thank you so much for being here to talk about, as we say, this really important topic. This is something that exists for Latinos. This is something that exists for Asian Americans, African Americans, so many groups of color. What can we do to combat this? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, um, Colorism is so much embedded in cultures. It's something that uh, started uh, with colonizations, th those countries that experienced colonizations, and and and, and also uh, communities that have experienced uh, um, uh, slavery. And so it's deeply rooted in cultures. We have to uh, teach people their identities. We have to teach people their history. We need to redefine beauty standards because that is a huge uh, issue that impacts these communities. We need to empower and uplift communities of color. No doubt. And, and Amira, how can people of color overcome their own insecurities and, and biases? Yeah, this is this is so much trauma. I mean, uh, this this has been going on for years and years and years. So people are dealing with so much trauma, so much pain, and so they need safe space. We have to create safe space for them. We have to listen to them. A lot of times, people don't disclose what they're experiencing unless they have safe space. So we have to create these safe spaces for them. We have to empower uh, a very 
early on we have to start empowering young girls that's why it's so important to have mentoring programs uh, young people have to see representations in all field um, for example journalism they have to see people of color in all of these places that re really represent them and that representation uh, it's so empowering and 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 that helps with their mentoring and that helps them see that they can do whatever they want to that's do. why we say representation matters so much so let's talk about the next generation because we want them to do better quickly if you will how do we address colorism at an early age yeah, early age, uh, during early childhood, it's so important to intervene. And that is when we really need to reform our school curriculum. The three most relevant themes from Dr. Adway's solution-focused assessment are one, identity, two, history, and three, educational curriculum. The first two can be addressed effectively by being able to answer the following questions. Do you know what race ideology is? Do you know the origin of race ideology? Is race a genetically valid concept? As it pertains to the third theme, education, this is such a very relevant issue for all of us today. For example, critical race theory. It is all the latest conspiratorial rage of hysteria. In order to be able to address situations like this in our education systems effectively, you should be able to at least do or answer the following. Can you objectively define critical race theory? Do you know the difference between critical race theory and race ideology? This is the purpose of this podcast, Deconstructing Race, to address these themes of identity, cultural versus racial, the history of race, and who invented it, and for what purpose, and most importantly, to educate children and adults on the most misunderstood ideology that is currently infecting the social fabric of our country, race ideology. Please continue to follow this podcast as together we deconstruct race.